0: It's time to buckle up your seatbelts and let's get this ball rolling. Welcome back everyone. I know that we have a lot of new listeners on the show today, so I just want to give each of you a big warm welcome and a big virtual hug and welcome you to our Challenges That Change Us community. We are so excited to have you on board with us here today. We have been super busy planning 2023 and I just know you guys are going to love what we have in store for you. Sometimes I get so excited that I just want to spill all the beans now, but that wouldn't be very fun for you. So instead, I'm going to be patient and you all need to stay tuned and see what we have coming up. Today, I want to introduce you to a super bubbly, energetic, fun-loving legend, Erica Smith. The first time I met Erica, I nearly fell over when she told me she was a chemistry lecturer. I don't know why, but I, it was just the last thing I expected her to say. She did. Erica is an associate professor at the University of New England, and she has studied all over the world. She completed her bachelor degree in Sydney, her master's in London, and her PhD in Houston. She then worked in the USA before returning to Australia to complete a postdoctoral fellowship in animal genetics. Erica has received many, many awards for her teaching, both locally and nationally, and was the Royal Australian Chemical Institute Educator of the Year in 2017. We touch base on how Erica keeps it real in her lectures, and it is so refreshing to hear her honesty and authenticity that she has with her students. Today we talked to Erica about her mum, who was diagnosed with leukemia when she was only 13. It really is quite an incredible story. So if you've been looking for a little bit of hope, This might just be the interview for you. We then go on to discuss Erica's anxiety and panic attacks and some of the fantastic strategies that we've not yet had on this podcast. So, if you're out there and you're wanting to add a few tools to your toolbox, stay on and listen to the second half of this interview. I always try to give a little trigger warning at the start of the episodes so I can keep you all safe and let you know what's covered in today's podcast. That way, you can decide if this is the right episode for you to listen to. Erica and I talk about her mom's leukemia, we talk a little bit about the bone marrow transplant, and as we've mentioned above, we also talk about anxiety and panic attacks. Every guest has a very different way of dealing with and coping with adversity, and that results in every podcast having a different tone and different energy and different pace. In this one, Erica and I stay fairly upbeat and we laugh a lot throughout the whole interview. I hope that you all really enjoy today's episode. Welcome to Challenges That Change Us, Erica. It's so good to have you on today.
1: Thank you very much, Charles. Very my pleasure to be here.
0: I love to start every interview in this podcast series with asking a question to kind of get to know you a little bit. So if you were to use an animal to describe you, what animal would that be and why?
1: I think that I would describe myself as a hybrid between a cat and a dog, but I think it's changing over the years. As a younger person, I was pretty much a dog. I was just jumping about, happy, didn't really think anything through too much, just went for it. Everything was great. And then as I'm getting older, I'm becoming more like a cat where I'm like, I don't really care what you think and I'm going to do what I want. And if you annoy me, I'm going to smack you in the face.
0: You know, I was thinking about you because for the audience, Eric and I know each other quite well. I was thinking about a hyena. And the reason <laughs> I say that, I need to explain this, is because I think about the movie Lion King, and I know a lot of our audience are from the same era as us, so they'll know that, that movie. And the laughing hyena, because they're. <laughs> Like when you cut, there it is, there's the laugh. When you come around the corner, we hear you laughing before you walk into the room. And then like, you know, you're always talking to everyone, really bubbly, like you light up a room. So I was actually thinking like a laughing hyena.
1: So that's, yeah, I guess that's the dog side of me. Yeah. <laughs> and hyenas yeah. are very misunderstood animals. In fact, I learned a lot about them one of the times I went to Africa. And yes, they're so ugly, everybody hates them, but they're very important animals. <laughs> yeah. I love
0: hyenas. Do Everyone
1: hate them. Yeah, I don't think because they're just ugly, they're just judging them by their looks, which is really quite rude.
0: <laughs> to be fair, though, there are some pretty ugly cats and dogs out there in the world. Some of the hairless ones, I don't want to insult anyone that has a hairless cat, but they are a little bit not on the good looking side. No, of, they're not
1: good looking yeah. at all. And then there's, yeah, there's a few dogs where you think, like the mutts, the scraggly mutts.
0: <laughs> or oh, our dogs, we've got French masters, and they're so oh. ugly, they're cute.
1: <laughs> Yeah, like snug dogs. Yeah, snug dogs, whatever they're called.
0: Yeah. Yeah, and Erica, tell us a little bit about yourself. Like, what is your backstory before we get into the challenge?
1: Well, the interesting thing about me, I guess, is that I'm an associate professor of chemistry. Now, I have three degrees in chemistry, a bachelor's degree with honours, a master's degree with distinction and a PhD. So I teach chemistry and I don't do too much chemistry research at the moment. I do more research on how to teach and learn chemistry. The first exam I ever failed at school was my year 11 mid-year chemistry exam. And actually, it was quite funny because I'd I'd never failed anything in my life. And I remember going to the teacher saying, I think there's been a mistake, I don't fail and um, she was like well no you failed so um, that was a bit of a shock and I continued on that path it was my worst mark in my HSC and I went to uni because I was very good at maths and continued to fail chemistry (laughs) I failed my whole second year I had to do it all over again and then somehow in that repetition and focusing on the mathematical side of chemistry I started to grow a love for chemistry and then I yeah, ended up doing honours in theoretical chemistry, which is all just, it's basically mathematics and computers. And then I did a master's in bench chemistry, so I actually did experiments. So that brought back a or sparked a love of actual chemistry with beakers and things. And then my PhD was back to the theoretical side. And now I teach chemistry. But I, without blowing my own horn, I'm quite good at teaching chemistry. My students really they learn a lot from me. And I i think it's because I was no good at chemistry. So i I can just really connect on a deep empathetic level (laughs) with my students because I spent most of my undergrad not understanding anything.
0: That's a really beautiful message for anyone out there listening. Like, you know, how often do we walk down a road and, you know, we feel like we fall over or we feel like we fail or whatever that word yeah. means to you and you stop. You're like, okay, we've hit this spot and I'm obviously not any good at it. So I'm just going to do something else with my life. And I think, Eric, you're the first one on the podcast that we've heard that's been like, well, I'll keep going and I'll, and I'll go and do a degree in it. And now I'll go and do it again for a second year. And then now you actually teach it. So I think that's a really beautiful message for people to hear.
1: It's a huge message. And one of the first things I tell my students is one, look, I know you think I know what I'm doing, but I don't know what I'm doing. And the person next to you doesn't know what they're doing. And nobody really knows what they're doing. And and that's okay. And then I, at some point quite soon, tell them that I had failed chemistry quite a lot. And they just all go, oh, Oh, and they, it just gives them this sense that they can do it because if I failed it and I'm at this level now, they realize that I think it's accepting that it is hard. It's not just them because yeah. I think a lot of people, even though they intellectually know it's hard in their head, it's like, I can't do it. It's me. Yes. So just letting them know. And then I, you know, in my teaching, I'm very, if they ask me a question and I don't know the answer, I straight up say, you know what? I don't know. I'm not really sure. Let's figure it out. And then sometimes I get confused and I'll tell them, oh, I'm a bit confused. So they see me struggling through it and they realise that actually, no, not people don't just open a chemistry book and they're good at chemistry. It's something you have to work at. So, yeah, some people are, but they're weird and far and few between. But sharing that is very important.
0: That must be a very different, I guess, introduction that a child hears or an adult hears when they go to university because my first thought was, oh, will they trust you as a as a teacher if you're standing up there saying, I don't know what I'm doing and I failed. But isn't that a different way to walk in the world? It's like, no, here it is. Here's the honesty. I've definitely like had a few bumps along the road, but I've actually mm. made it
1: to here. And I think, I mean, I put a bit of humour around. I have a picture of a dog in a lab and he's got, safety goggles on and underneath it, it says, I've got no idea what I'm doing. So we have a bit of a laugh about it, but all my colleagues, traditionally you get up and you say, Oh, well, I've done this and I've been here and I've done that. And I've got a PhD and all the students just do is just go, Oh crap, I'll never be good enough. Most of them anyway. So I think just being a bit real with them. But they know, based on the fact that you're a a university lecturer, that you're obviously good at what you do. So I don't think they're saying we don't trust you. It builds that trust a lot more because they think, okay, you're a real person. You're just like me. And I can come and ask you questions. And that's what I want them to be able to do. I want them to feel comfortable just coming to me and saying, oh... And that's what most of my teaching is psychology. It's not so much chemistry, just getting them to have a sense of belonging and belief in themselves that they can can do what they need to do.
0: And that there's no problem you can't solve. We might not know how Mm. to work it out right now, but like, let's put our heads together and find a way or ask someone if we don't know.
1: I mean, that's the whole point of university is about learning how to problem solve. The content itself is almost irrelevant. And they come from school thinking that everything has a set answer. And so that, that process of saying, okay, here's a problem, I don't know the answer, and that's okay. That's where they fall down because they say, here's a problem, I don't know the answer, shit, I'm useless. And they just go straight to that default of, well, I don't know this, rather than going, okay. Because nearly every question I read, my first reaction is, I don't know.
0: <laughs> uh, next question, please. <laughs> yeah.
1: and then sometimes I look up. I have to look up at my degrees on the wall and go, No, 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 no! I got this. I can, I can do it. I can do it. <laughs> oh, and you've done lots of travel in your life as
0: well. Yeah, Tell I love me traveling about
1: that. as much as I could. As far my parents took us to Malaysia and Singapore when I was about nine, and I remember just stepping off the plane and that I was hooked. The sights and this—I mean, it felt bad, but it just was different. So the second, I mean, I travelled in the summer during university. I would finish the year, work for two months, go overseas for a month, come back with no money, and then literally the day after I graduated from my bachelor's degree, I bought a one-way ticket to London and off I went. I have a British passport, so that made that easier. And then I worked there, studied there. I went in and out of Europe as many times as I possibly could for about two and a half years, and then I took a full gap year and just went, oh, circumnavigated the globe, Lived in London again for a bit longer and travelled in Europe again and the States and then came home for a little bit. I'm not done yet. So then I moved to America to do my PhD. I spent nearly nine years there and travelled all through South America and Central America and popped to Europe because it's not that far. And then, yeah, so eventually came home to have my daughter, but I still try to go overseas. Well, not since COVID, but before COVID at least once a year and then travelling around Australia as well. Wow. I just love it.
0: (laughs) There's so much I could ask you about that, but I'm only going to ask one question here. What was the most interesting story you have from overseas that stays in your
1: mind? (sighs) Wow. (sighs) Not so many, but I think one of the most magical moments I think I ever had was I went to Cambodia in about 1996 and went up to visit Angkor Wat, which wasn't a particularly popular thing at that time. Now it's full of tourist buses and there's thousands of tourists everywhere. But at that point, I was going from Vietnam to Thailand. I didn't even tell my mother I was going to Cambodia because I knew she would have freaked out. Anyway, so I went up there and I paid a young man on his motorbike to take me around to all the temples. And uh, we were sitting at the top of a temple late at night. The sun was coming down. I was just looking over the jungle. And he, he said to me, oh, that's Thailand over there. And for me as a 26-year-old who'd grown up in suburban Sydney, to sit atop of this temple in this country that... You would understand I was growing up in the 70s and hearing about Pol Pot and Cambodia, it was just this kind of mystical, evil, crazy place but beautiful people and looking over to another country across a, a land border, which I found very strange growing up in Australia because we yeah. don't have international borders in our country. And I just, that was probably one of the most magical moments of my life. But then driving back, the bike guy said, oh, I'm cold. And I said, you're cold? I'm not cold. He said, no, because you're fat. <laughs> and I wasn't fat at all at the time. Actually, I was extremely thin. I said, "What you talk? What you talking about?" And he said, "Yeah, you should be so grateful that you're fat because that means you have enough food." And the poverty in Cambodia is 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 quite shocking. It's the worst poverty I'd seen. I think at that point in my life, and so uh, that. Kind of rounded off the whole day with just magic and wonder and mystery, and then just being so grateful for, yeah. for the life that I have, where I, I'm fat, I'm lucky to be fat.
0: <laughs> oh God, we wouldn't it be great if we all thought that way, though. Like, as in, uh, just be grateful that we've got food all the time.
1: Exactly, and I think overall, we're travelling. That's one of the things coming from a developed country that uh, that you realise how lucky how lucky you are.
0: I have to tell the audience because obviously you guys don't get to see what we see. We actually see each other on camera and Erica is the first person I've interviewed that arms are flying left, up, (laughs) down as she tells her stories. So (laughs) it's quite charismatic I've got Italian
1: genes, I think. (laughs) My great, great, great grandmother was Italian and and it seems to just come out in every generation. Yeah, so I want
0: everyone (laughs) to imagine as they hear Erica talk that these arms are just like up in the air and flying around (laughs) (laughs) They're like up, down, up. (laughs) Erica, we've brought you on today to talk about a challenge because it's challenges that change us. And I know we've had a few discussions about this, about your mum was diagnosed when you were quite young, around 13, I think. And we had the discussion around the impact that can have on a family and how often we're just in survival mode and we're actually, it's not until, even post the event or post that period of time in our life that we start to realize how much it vibrates, or I guess even we were kind of talking about like like the leftover symptoms, kind of that's mm, a word that yep. comes to mind. So, would you mind taking us through a little bit about your mom and what happened in yeah, your sure.
1: experience in that moment? So, my mom probably when I was about twelve or thirteen, she started just feeling vaguely unwell, and she had her legs were very numb. Doctors couldn't figure out what was wrong with her, and they tossed a few things around like MS and I can't remember what else. And we were just very lucky. Our family GP was also a family friend and he just pushed and pushed and pushed. So when I was about 14, he, he came around actually one night, quite late at night, to tell my parents that they'd found out that my mother had leukaemia. I'll oh, never forget it. They were in the living room with the doctor. We were upstairs and then at some point they called us down to tell us what had happened. And at that time, this is like 1984, the word leukaemia was just you just thought death sentence it was just the treatments for it now are so much better but in the 80s it was I just thought that's it my mum's going to die and actually she wasn't too bad for a little while and then she'd gone into the hospital for a week for some tests probably probably about a couple of years later and um, she was just having all these tests and they phoned us up quite late in the evening and said you better come in there's been some bad news, and so we all jumped in the car and went in, and that's when they told us. I can't remember the exact details of what they worked out, but anyway, she she had two leukemias: chronic myeloid leukemia and ALL, the one that kids mostly get. So she had two leukemias, and they basically all but said, "Look, we'll do some stuff, but it's not looking good. We don't think she's going to make it." Kind of thing. And it's funny the memories I have about that because I remember standing there and looking at my parents who. In my memory, they were just staring at each other, and I remember thinking for the first time in my life, "Oh, that's what two adults who love each other look like." Mm-hmm. Because up until that point, they'd just been my parents. Parents yeah. are human beings, right? No. <laughs> but my mum says her memory of it was me and my sister standing at the end of the bed in um, netball uniforms, just looking absolutely lost. And she said, "I just, my heart just broke seeing the looks on your faces." So anyway, she ended up. She had. Rounds of horrible chemo radiotherapy, and I don't know if they even still do this, but she was white-lined in her room. We couldn't cross. Now, people now, they have chemotherapy. You go in and you sit in a chair and they give it to you and then you go home. But she had to stay in the hospital and they had a white line in the room. You couldn't step over it. So we couldn't touch her or, or anything or hug her or anything like that. And I, just, I feel like I spent 50 years going to Westmead Hospital every single night so we'd come home. Do our netball, whatever, have dinner, all pile in the car, drive to Westmead. And the walk from the car park to the hematology ward felt like it was a thousand kilometers long. We just did this every night. It just became my life, just going to the hospital every night. How old were you when this about 16, I think, when it started to the proverbial really hit the fan. So she had all this terrible chemo, really sick. And then eventually they just said, look, the only option is a bone marrow transplant. They said, and again, it's changed so much now, but in those days they just said you've got a one in three chance of surviving the transplant, but if you don't have it, you'll die. But the transplant's horrible, <laughs> and it really was. So she had to make a decision about what she'd do. She chose to do the transplant. They tested me and my sister as donors. They said we weren't compatible, so they looked for a donor overseas, which was very expensive, so my parents selling everything. We had friends offering it lend money and that kind of thing and then they found a donor in the UK and then eventually they decided that my sister even though she wasn't as close a match as this woman because she was a blood relative and also this woman had had children so apparently once you've had children because you've had another human being in your body you've got more things in there that can cause rejection so they decided that they would use my sister which they did and as I said the transplant was horrible. They essentially give you that much chemo and radiotherapy that they kill you. So they basically kill all the marrow in your body. You're on the point of death and then they pump these, this new marrow into you. So you can imagine how sick you are. It's so hard. Like you say that
0: and you say imagine, but I can't, you know, because I haven't <laughs> seen it and it hasn't been a part of my world. Like I can't even begin well, yeah. to imagine what it was like.
1: Yeah, and I don't think at the time we did because I think if I'd actually sat down and thought about it, I probably would have gone mad. But the transplant, yeah, so she was in this room for at least a month and then the only people that could visit her were me and my father and my sister. So none of her friends, she had a really couple of really good friends, Graham Warner who's a close family friend and her best friend, Olive Wills, who used to come and see her sometimes nearly every day. None of them could visit her and we had to put on a shower cap thing, gloves, a mask and a gown and little booties over our feet and we had to spray ourselves with a kind of disinfectant and we couldn't touch her. Because she had no immunity whatsoever, and so only us and the medical staff getting going out. But we couldn't—we couldn't even hug her. I'd never seen anyone in so much pain and agony; it was awful. But somehow the transplant took, and so this was '89. She had the transplant, my first year at university, and uh, she's still alive today. <laughs> just, oh my god! <laughs>
0: I was not expecting you to say that.
1: No, no. So she, she pulled through and I, actually I'll, I'll never forget, <laughs> my sister and I were sitting watching television or something and she, she came in and she said, ah, your, your rooms are pink stars. and ah, what's going on? And we were like, "Guess she's cured. <laughs> she, <laughs> we have our mum back. <laughs> she, she's now going to say
0: Questions. So that's just insane that she's still alive. Geez, that is hope right there. For anyone that needs that tiny little bubble of hope, that is it in ounces. Mm. How did you keep up with school? Like, I'm listening to you, I'm thinking, how did you even do school when yeah. you talked about netball and, like,
1: oh? We just plodded along. My father, who, I mean, I just can't even imagine what it must have been like for him, he had quite a big responsibility in his job. He managed an, an entire, the entire state offices of a, of a, of a company. So he had lots of staff and he was always pretty good about his work. He worked from eight to five and he didn't usually work outside of that. When, once when we were older, when we were younger, I think he used to do a lot of other work, but he had a big responsibility in his job. And so he basically had to be mother and father. And again, this was in the 80s. My mother had been a stay-at-home mum. She quit her job when we were born. She'd been the stay-at-home mum he'd gone and earned the money and mum said she doesn't remember him ever changing a nappy not because he was a horrible man just, it just it was wasn't done that way as well this wasn't done he reckons he did but and then all of a sudden he had to look after us and I remember was putting tampons on the shopping list and the poor man had to go to the shops and get tampons and I remember he, the first time he did he came home and he bought remember um Franklin's no frills yeah <laughs> jumbo size tampons and you we were like you we were like uh dad we need to have a conversation one they're no frills and two they're like elephant size and we're just teenage girls and he's like i don't know so he really held the family together we, you had neighbors bringing in the odd dish or whatever but he he just he kept it all together and we just went to school but I did go through a phase of well and it lasted quite a while of of rebelling and I think not that my mother she says oh you're blaming me but I actually was speaking to a therapist once after my father passed away and I just went to get I thought I'll just go and get some brief therapy and I was talking about the fact that as a teenager I suddenly in about year 10 started drinking and smoking and truanting and just not doing drugs but And I said I was always a good student and I always thought smoking was dumb and and I just would, I don't understand why I did all that. And she was like, wasn't your mother really sick? And I was, oh. and so she said that no, you're probably just trying to get some control back in your life or something. So
0: Was that the first time someone had actually mentioned that that perhaps may have been a tri- contributor yeah. to Yeah, and so that
1: was only, my father died seven years ago, so it was only about six years ago that someone had kind of said that to me. So, of course, I told my mum and she said, oh, it's my fault. And I said, no, it's not your fault, mum. You didn't get sick on purpose. I'm just, oh, you know, she's of the older generation. and Yeah. <laughs> oh, it's always apparent. Told, isn't it?
0: So what did it mean for you when you started to digest that information? Like when you heard that for the first time and then you thought, oh, perhaps what did that then translate to, or how did you integrate that knowledge?
1: I just felt a bit better about myself because I couldn't understand why I'd done all those stupid things. Ah. Like why I was smoking and you know, I was an athlete. I loved sport and you know and I smoked then for I don't know how many years I really only stopped smoking when I got pregnant yeah. and I never smoked a lot and you know binge drinking I did binge drinking in the 80s way before it was a thing and not, I don't think my parents really knew about that I suppose probably confess hopefully since. she's not listening now <laughs> <laughs> so I think she knows all our dark secrets now we're old enough that we've confessed them all and yeah and skipping school I mean I loved school so I'm not sure what that and I nearly got thrown out actually in year 10. I we got busted because I I was so good at school and my maths teacher phoned my mum up to say Eric has missed so much school cuz she's sick. I'm really worried about oh, her God. marks. <laughs> my mother was like, "Uh, what now?" I came home and she said, I've had a call from the school and I know what you've been doing. And she said, I'm going to leave you to tell your father, which was probably one of the worst moments of my life because he came home and I said, I need to speak to your Dad. My family used to call me Egg. And he said, what's up, Egg? And I just burst into tears. And, yeah, I mean, I felt so guilty and I was still yeah, And I was so stupid. And the drinking, I mean, anything could have happened to me. Yeah. I, I would get so drunk sometimes. and, But I think it was all just that not wanting to face what was actually happening in that possibility of my mum. I just couldn't comprehend of my mum dying. Like, it just wasn't on the radar. I just couldn't think about that. So... Think that's what all that was about
0: and it's funny even listening to you because i'm like yes of course you would need to go out and be destructive or do things that are pushing the boundaries or you know do something that you have control over you know any of those things like your mum was dying you were at the hospital every night how many of your friends were actually mm. going through this at the time did you know anyone that was going through this no did you talk about it to anyone like was there people there supporting you through it do you know what i mean
1: yeah, not really. We didn't really talk about it at school. I, I think, I mean, I think people knew, but I you know, didn't understand because I didn't talk about it a lot, probably in university, maybe. I mean, my best friend then, she, I remember her coming to the hospital with me once. But yeah, we didn't really talk about it. And we didn't really talk about it much as a family. And I don't think that was on purpose. It was just, we just got to put one foot in front of the other mm. and it was really difficult too because my mum I think was always that my father had a crazy temper I have a temper my sister has a temper and sometimes we turn up at the hospital and we just blurt out all the crap and mum would just be like oh yeah hello trying to stay alive here and I think I have a memory of a nurse actually once bailing us up and saying don't you go in there and dump all this shit on her she needs to think everything at home <laughs> is really good so she can focus on getting better. So that was a real struggle, just not to have my mum just to be a turd to, trying to be positive for her. So all that I think. I just want
0: to reach through and cuddle you, do you know? Like I just, (laughs) listening to you, I just feel for that young girl going through that Mm. as a unit and isolated on your own. You know, yeah, there yeah. sounds like there's a sense that there was all of you in it together, but you were also on that road by yourself.
1: Yeah, and I mean, and my little sister, who when you meet her, you think she's as tough as anything, but I think she's way more sensitive than I am. So, and we didn't even really talk about it. We don't even talk about it much now. I think it was just something that we went through, and we've moved on. And now, like, you know, my father got cancer, so then we're like, oh, cancer. What we know about that. And my mother now has about five cancers now, which <laughs> she reckons. She actually said that she's got all these cancers and she phoned up the, they call it the late effects clinic. So she went for many years, every year to Westmead in Sydney to have tests and things. And that eventually they said, look, you don't need to come anymore, but just keep in touch with us. And a little bit, that was half about her, but also doing research. The, the doctor that basically saved her life, who we are still in touch with, he was a researcher as well. So pioneering all this, all this type of work. Anyway, she phoned them up to say, look, I've got all these cancers and I'm just wondering, do you think it's from all the chemo and radiotherapy I had? And they said, look, to be honest, the treatments in the 80s were so toxic, like without a doubt it's probably been caused from that, but they said you were only supposed to live for about two more years. We were only trying to give you a bit more time with your family. You weren't supposed to live for another 30 years. Yeah, we weren't, we weren't working
0: on the last stage of your life, mate. We were just trying to keep you afloat for now. Yeah, yeah. Wow.
1: And all all her cancers are now in remission. And she also got medically acquired hepatitis C from the when she had leukemia. That's been cured. So we actually call her the weed because <laughs> you can't, can't kill, kill her. Oh, do you tell her that to her face? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, she said the doctor calls me the responder because I respond to medications and my sister went, yeah, more like a weed. So then that it stuck after that, so we call it the weed.
0: So we've got egg, you get called egg, and your mum's weed.
1: How the we weed. Go- Dad was the fat man, <laughs> even though he wasn't fat. I don't know why we called him that. He wasn't fat at all. My sister doesn't. She has a nickname, just the boss, I suppose, and do what you're told. But but it's interesting because it's the humour, I think, that we used to get through it we would just laugh about well you know yourself with all the going to the hospital oh. and treatments and my mum had the pregnazone face uh. and all the hair fell out and I remember we came home once and she was sitting there with her big face and bald but she had a moustache and she had bleach on it and she, she had a, <laughs> just walked in and we just burst out laughing and she's like why are you laughing at me but th- I think that's all we could do yeah because seeing my mother like that I just we just so we joked a lot about it And I don't know, maybe people think we're heartless, but that's just, if you don't try to laugh about it, what else can you do?
0: You've got to find your way through it, don't you? You've got to find, like you said, there's a couple of things, like one foot in front of the other, taking one day at a time. There's a few things I've heard there, laughing, using humour through it. I want to ask a question about your sister around the bone marrow. What did that mean? Because I also want to ask about your 20s, but what did that mean for your sister being the person that gave her bone marrow? Like what did that mean?
1: It's a really interesting question because it, she had to have a, you know, where they get a big needle and they basically gouge the bone out of your back. What's it called? A, a lumbar puncture. She had to have a general anaesthetic and it was extremely painful. And I remember her telling me that one of the nurses came in and said, oh, maybe it was a nurse. I don't, it might have been a counsellor. mum used to hate the counsellors because they used to say, let's talk about dying. And she'd be like, no, I want to talk about living. And so she, the nurses used to run in and say, the counsellors are coming and they'd all pretend to be asleep <laughs> they them too depressing. Anyway, not all of them, but I think there was one in particular. <laughs>
0: That's interesting when you say that, isn't it? Because it, some people want to talk about living. Some people want to talk about, let's just talk, let's just sit in the hope space.
1: Yes. And my mother had been told by her doctors, a positive attitude won't save you that a negative attitude will kill you. If you think you're going to die, you will die. Like, you need to have that belief that you're going to live, and it's no guarantee. Anyway, so my sister said she was laying and getting ready for this thing, and somebody came in and said, you know, if this doesn't work, it's not your fault. And she went, well, thanks, because I hadn't thought of that before, but now I am. So someone put that on her, which is really quite shocking. And then we just laughed about it because she got a really expensive pair of basketball boots, and I got squat, and I said, "Well, it's not my fault that she's more compatible with me." so then we just kind of made a joke about it and and laughed but so I don't even, she's never said anything to me, but I suspect knowing her soft, squishy soul that it probably did weigh on her a lot, but probably like me, she's just gone. Mm-hmm. I'm going to put that over there. And she's a little bit better at, I think I put things aside and they fester. She just chucks them out. Yeah. I can't do anything about it. I'm going to move on because life's too short. So she's. I think she's a lot better at that than I am. And
0: maybe that's where um, we talk about that fester because there's some of the conversations you and I have had. It was like you yeah. discovered in your 20s, not that you knew it at that time, but that's when it kind of all started to unravel a little bit, didn't it, for you?
1: Yeah. And I'd, I'd moved overseas. I was living in London. I was living the dream. I'd gone off and I was traveling and uh, And my parents had actually come to see me. And we were up in Scotland. And I remember just feel it felt like I was falling backwards. I had no balance. And I thought, hmm, you know, something wrong. And I went, had blood tests and da, 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 da. And in the end, the GP said, look, I think you're suffering from anxiety. And I was like, "Me? Oh, don't be ridiculous. I'm going chill. And I said, no, I'm pretty sure I've got some terrible brain disease and there's 50 tumours in my head and, or I've got schizophrenia and I insisted upon seeing a psychiatrist. <laughs> and he sent me off to see this psychiatrist and I said, oh, and he said, tell me what's happened in your life. And so I said all that and, he, and I said, and this doctor thinks I've got anxiety. There's nothing, you know, what have I got to stress about? And then he kind of went back over it and he was like, plus you did a degree, plus you've just moved overseas on your own. And he was like, and you think you don't have stress in your life? And I was like... So yeah, that was, and yeah, so severe panic attacks, um, not being able to stay in places I had to leave and that that kind of thing.
0: Did the panic attacks happen after you were aware that you had anxiety as opposed to before that information?
1: I'm just trying to think when my first panic attack was, and I think it was, no, I think I had had them before the GP told me that because when I have a panic attack, I feel like I'm spiralling into insanity and so you know some people feel like they're having heart attacks some people can't feel like they can't breathe I just feel like I'm going mad and that's why I insisted that I was going mad um, because it just felt like I was going crazy. What
0: do you mean when you say that when you say it feels like you're going crazy like you're having intrusive of thoughts or the world seems like it doesn't fit anymore or what do you mean?
1: I, I, that's it's really hard to describe I mean I guess it feels a bit like things are closing in and so anywhere where I was where I couldn't leave freely, I would panic. And so particularly in the underground in London, if you're between stations and I couldn't get out of the chain, I would panic. Really weirdly, if I was in the middle of the row in a cinema or at a concert where it would be, yes, I can get out, but it would be weird for me to stand up in the middle of a piece of music and walk out, I would have a panic attack. So all my friends knew I always had to sit on the end of the row. Being in a meeting just with me and one other person where it would be weird for me to say, I'm leaving. But if I'm in a big group of people and I got up and left, no one would notice. Yeah. So it was almost like a claustrophobia yeah. thing, I suppose. But I would just, yeah, every i just start to feel sheer panic and stress and and just madness. And I think it felt like madness because it's such a weird feeling, a panic attack. It's really weird. And I'd never had anything like that in my entire life, ever. So it was just so strange to me. And since now, obviously, I've learned all about it. Yeah, so
0: tell us about that. Well, we'll, Before we go into the strategies, what sense do you make of the panic attack now? Like when you say you had these panic attacks, have you done some work around them and have you worked out why they were there or how they came about or what they meant for you?
1: So I think I know why they were there and I think that relates back to my teenage years and just a couple other small traumas that I've had. That Well, not small traumas but just traumas and it's all culminating. But I've had quite a lot of therapy. I take an anti-anxiety medication, but I didn't do that probably till oh my early 30s. And I was at work one day teaching in America. And all of a sudden, the room just started closing in. And I just thought, I can't stay in here anymore. And I told the students, oh, I've just got to go to the toilet. And then I went to my boss and I said, oh, I've got really bad diarrhea. I've got to go home. <laughs> I just left in the middle of a class. And I just drove home the whole way crying, went straight to a GP got a referral and I said look I think I need to try some medication but I've got a lot of strategies about how to deal with the panic attacks when they come on don't get them very often anymore but just recently I have been because of my workplace (laughs) and I've noticed I was in Sydney the other week at a concert and I was in the middle of the row, which hasn't bothered me for years and I had a full-on panic attack and I just had to keep taking deep breaths and telling myself it's not real it's not real you'll be all right and that kind of thing but yeah so when you're tired or stressed you can't fight them i don't know if that makes sense but when you feel strong and healthy then it's well you don't really get them so it's kind of sneaks up on you
0: hey i hope you're enjoying this episode if you are and you'd like to learn more or engage further with our podcast community you can do this in our facebook group Just search for Challenges That Change Us on Facebook or look in the link in our show notes. In this group, we'll be sharing extra content and giving further background to our episodes, so I hope to see you there. But for now, let's get back to the episode. And you said that you've got a lot of strategies now for when they come on. Do you want to talk a little bit about what they
1: are? Yeah, I've got quite a few. Um, One strategy I used to do, which is a bit harder now because... I think it's harder. I used to have a packet of Xanax in my bag. And the fact that I had Xanax in my bag and I knew I could take it would calm me down. I wouldn't have panic attacks. So I didn't actually need to take the drug. It was a real placebo thing. Now it's harder to get things like that from GPs. So I don't do that anymore. And I just used to, it did expire and I'd just go and get another pack and I never used it for years. So that, was, that placebo effect was, was very helpful. Obviously taking big deep breaths because the panic attack is from, um, you're not breathing properly so you're not getting enough oxygen and so your fingers start to tingle and your heart rate goes a bit funny and then you go, oh, shit, something's wrong and then you panic. So deep breathing is very important.
0: And when you say deep breathing, I'm going to get you to go one step further. How do you initiate that? Because once that a panic attack is starting to take over your body, it's quite hard to flip into that.
1: I think it's because I know what it is. So when I first started having them, I didn't understand at all that it was just a physiological thing and there was actually nothing wrong with me then I could do it. But I couldn't have done it beforehand if I didn't understand what was happening. So it really is just stopping and even just like distracting yourself sometimes. So if just say I'm in a concert and I'm starting to have a panic attack, I'll just start reading the program. And that'll distract me from just sitting there in this space, read the program, start taking deep breaths, maybe just look around me a bit. I might do things like rub my eyes. So it's not an obvious movement, but it's just breaking something up
0: like a circuit breaker like it sounds like when I'm listening to you so tell me if this is how it is for you it sounds like it's like I'm imagining a snowball going down a hill and so it's starting to get momentum and as soon as you can kind of recognize that the snowball is there on its way down the hill. If you can like divert it or smash it or like try and do something that's a breaker or a circuit breaker in that moment, then that ball can't keep getting momentum. So as soon as that awareness exactly. hits, yeah. it's like bang, what can I do here? Physically, what can I do? I can rub my eyes. I can pick up a program. Breath work, what can I do here? I can take some deep breaths. Anchoring work, like where am I? Let's get some grounding stuff happening here. What can I see? What can I hear? What can I touch? That kind of stuff. Is that right?
1: Right. Yeah, that's exactly right. And then having that mental conversation, it's not real, it's not real, you'll be all right, it'll 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 pass because you know it always passes. So just saying, hang on, just hang on, it'll pass, it'll pass. And sometimes it might get worse before it gets better. I used to be able to speed them up, <laughs> like i just speed into this awful panic and then just to get it over with, which is really weird. I used to do that when I was teaching in big le- lecture theatres. i I'd About five minutes in, I'd have a start having a panic attack and then I'd just speed it up and then it'd be gone and I'd be fine.
0: And does it feel like everyone's aware of it? Like when you're in the moment because you're talking, what you're talking about is like you're in this little bubble and there's all of this stuff happening inside your head and body where there's a whole world moving around you. Do you feel like everyone can see what's happening
1: for you? No. It's like there's... They're they're irrelevant almost yeah and all just all that you know you're tingly and you can feel you, you get hot and it's just a really uncomfortable feeling. But I used to do with fires like say I was going to give a lecture and I knew I thought I'm going to have a panic attack. I would go in and I'd say to the students, oh, I just I'm not really feeling that good today. So if I just duck out, just you know just don't worry about. it, I'll be back in a couple of minutes. So then I'd set up a reason for me leaving. So then I wouldn't panic about the fact that I couldn't leave. <laughs> so, you know, just setting that, it's just, or, or if I was, you know, going into a meeting with someone, just me and one other person and I'm just staring at them and that's classic panic attack, I'd say to them, I'm feeling a bit funny. I don't know, just, you know, I should be okay, but, you know. So then I've given, I've set the scene. So if I do walk out, it won't look as weird as if I just walked out. So then I don't panic because I've got an out. It's such a strange... I would panic. I would have a panic attack because I was so stressed about possibly having a panic attack. So because I had the Xanax in my pocket, which would stop panic attacks, I didn't panic about having panic attacks. It
0: makes sense though, because if you're talking about the fear is that you can't get out of the situation or you can't escape but you have strategies on how you can get out of the situation or how you can calm it. So the drugs or telling everyone around you that, hey, not feeling great today, I'm going to be able to leave, that is actually taking away that trigger of not being able to get out of it.
1: Exactly. And so I do that now. Actually, I bought some tickets for the symphony for next year because I'm not feeling so great around my anxiety at the moment. I bought aisle seats. So, And if I'm in an aisle seat, I do not feel stressed at all because if I got up and walked out, no one's going to even notice. Whereas if I have to shuffle past a whole row of people in your house <laughs> everybody's looking at me
0: you know it's so funny usually when I do these podcasts I'm so like thinking about you but when you said that and I am going to mention it for our audience because I sometimes have to do this stuff as well and as you're saying I'm like ha oh, that is exactly what I do in the PT as you know Erica you train in our gym yeah. and I'm really nervous I'm going to have some sort of seizure or pseudo seizure at the moment with everything going yeah. on and I have a history of seizures and I get so nervous how that's going to be for everyone in the gym and that no one's going to know what's to do if I just all of a sudden drop to the ground and start shaking
1: we would probably just pick you up and squat with you yeah
0: <laughs> over the head but I was thinking it's, yeah, it's kind of like anxiety because the minute I mentioned yesterday yeah. I went up to one of my trainers that was in the class and just quietly said to her hey I'm feeling really off today if I collapse film it give it a couple of minutes and just, you know, call an ambulance if I don't come out of it. And that was enough to calm it. And I was able to get on and teach for the rest yeah. of the class. And I've never really stopped to think about it is that setup piece. If we can do the setup yeah. work, sometimes that's all we need. It's all it's we all need, need. And be yeah. okay with that. And don't beat yourself up for that or have an inner critic around that or have this little voice in your head that's like, because essentially we're trying to say to ourselves, you're not good enough. Why are you like this? This isn't okay. Like, really, it's completely yeah. fine. All we're doing, is completely it's completely f- yeah, fine, yeah. understandable. Anyone in that situation with what you've been through, coming through to where you are now, anyone would, would have some sort of physical outlet from your childhood.
1: Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I have another strategy which I saw in a book once, which was imagining that you're on a beautiful island And your anxiety or your panic attack is this really really scary, ugly-looking monster. But he's on a boat that's floating away, and he's so small in the distance, so he's kind of like going, (laughs) and you're going, sorry, can't hear you. You know, so that's actually helped me. Just actually imagining that sometimes that's helped me calm down. But what you said is right. It's about there's nothing wrong with you. You're not weak. It's a condition. But the other thing is, of course, which you will agree with, is exercise. You need whether it's going to the gym and doing deadlifts with massive weights or just going for a walk each day. And the amount of students I have come in and say, look, I've got anxiety. Do you exercise? No. Are you drinking coffee? Yes. Do you drink alcohol? Yes. Okay. You can do so much to just help yourself, although I'm a bit of a hypocrite. I do drink wine. but.
0: And you don't exercise. Do you exercise? I think I'm not sure. Can we just pause for a moment, stop the podcast, um, just so that everyone knows, Erica, last week, uh, were you in the gym?
1: Actually, the last two weeks I've been a bit lazy, a bit lazy, <laughs> just being tired. But people say to me, oh, gosh, yeah, you know, why do you work so much? And I'm like, well, I mean, I love exercise. I always have. I've always been an athletic person. But it is that mental yeah. health. And like smashing a med ball into the ground, that feels
0: yeah. really good, <laughs> you know. And I was thinking back to our conversation only last night about pills and this, you know, we're talking about act- medication yeah. that you mm-hmm. take for anxiety or for heart, like for my heart rate I take a pill and I was having that conversation with you being a scientist about how much it blows my mind that we can have something so small And it has such a significant impact physiologically and psychologically Mm. on our bodies. So the tablets I take at the moment drop my heart rate for anywhere between 15 to 30 beats per minute. I'm like this tiny little tablet that's smaller than my pinky fingernail has a significant impact on my body and my quality of life. That blows my mind. And so when we think about exercise, they're the same. Like if we could put exercise in a pill and you could just take a pill each day, we'd all do it, right, because it's so simple. It takes one second you just pop it in your mouth. Exercise is hard, but it has the same sort of effect on our bodies as what these tablets can take. It just takes a little bit more effort Mm. or a lot more effort.
1: It takes a (laughs) bit more effort, yeah. But there's tricks with exercise. I trick myself with exercise all the time. So I say to myself, okay, I'm going to go for a run. I don't want to go, so you know what? I'm going to run for 500 metres and I'm going to stop. And so you think, okay, 500 metres, that's not hard. I'll do that. And, of course, once you start, you do whatever it is you were going to do. I said to you last week for PT when I was not feeling very well, and so I just thought to myself, I just thought about the end of the class because you always feel so good at the end of the class. So I just pictured that feeling rather than the start of the class. So (laughs) – don't think about that. And then having that conversation, which I don't really like TV gym people, but I remember reading a quote from Michelle Bridges and she said, you don't need to be motivated. You just need to turn up. And that idea that well, I'm not motivated. Well, I'm, who, who's motivated to go to PT at 5 o'clock? No, what, not your there.
0: trainer's not motivated to get out of bed at 4.30 in the morning either to set up for you to kick off at 5 o'clock in the morning. So
1: you just go, yeah.
0: Yeah, I was thinking there. There's two things that I notice over the years in the gym. It's like you, most people either have trouble getting to the gym in the first place or getting out the door to go for a run. Or they have trouble once they're yeah. there. So, sounds like Erica, you're someone that if you can just get there, the, the job will happen.
1: Yeah. Once I'm there, I'm good. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So, your focus needs to be on getting to the gym. Whereas for someone else, they may have yeah. no dramas getting to the gym or walking out their door with their shoes on. Their drama is actually completing and giving 110% in the actual session.
1: Oh, well, that's interesting. So, I always, I just assumed with everybody, once they were there, they you're there, you might as well, well, oh, it's interesting. Oh no,
0: no, no. It's very different. So it's really good if you can work out where you sit on that spectrum personally, when you're listening to this, is someone that can get to the gym or get to class or get out there for a run, or is someone that struggles once you're there. And once you get that, you put your strategies in around whatever it is that you need support
1: with. All about strategies, all about strategies. Yeah.
0: And are there any other strategies that you've given us so many around your panic attacks? Is there any other strategies that you've used over the years?
1: Yeah, so I I was thinking one that popped into my mind while we were talking was I had to give a talk at a huge conference in about 2017, and it was a science talk, and I hadn't given one for a long time, and I had just this piddly little bit of work, and I was in this seminar, and there's all these hot shots with gazillions of dollars of funding from the government, which is really hard to get if you're a scientist, and all these amazing work, and they've got big groups, and (laughs) oh my God, I was so stressed about it. And then I just said to myself, I almost couldn't walk into the room. And then I thought, do you know what? If they start in at me, it was actually the first talk I ever gave in my PhD. Someone attacked me, not physically, but scientifically. And it was horrible. And I thought, if someone starts in at me, I'm just going to say, you know, oh, you think you're so hot shit? Well, come and see, you know, where I work and the conditions that I have. And the fact that I've even produced this is amazing. So F you. And I was going to walk out. And then I thought, there's my out. I'm just going to tell them all the F off. And I I was fine because I thought, who who the F are you to be judging me? You know? So, and it was quite funny when I put my acknowledgements up, which most, like I said, they have $100 million from the Australian Research Council and this much supercomputer time. And I had acknowledgement to our IT guy who built me a mini supercomputer and my teaching award, which is what funded the travels. And they're all going, but actually they were beautiful people and they all came up and they said, good on you, like just for being honest and saying, look, this is my shitty bit of work. And, and they thought it was really great. So I didn't need to flip the bird at, at, at them all. But that is actually my big strategy now when I'm stressed about something. I think I can always just go, you know what, <clears throat> I don't care. I don't care what you think about me. You don't know anything about me. I'm not going to be judged by you. And if you're judging me, you're not someone that I care about mm. your opinion anyway because you're a horrible person. <laughs> so I tell that to myself a lot.
0: I was thinking that when you said that, that we also had this conversation about how we can hear from 50, 100, 200 people that were doing a really good job, right? Like you're doing fabulous. Say we're talking about this podcast, for example. People can be like, I love your podcast. Yesterday would have had five or six people say, listen to this week's episode, really good. One person that I don't know happens to drop a line and say you talk too much or that was a really shit episode <laughs> or one thing right or you got your words mixed up yeah. and you said the wrong thing about x plummet like how often do we do that how often do we take yeah. on board one comment from one person in one point in yeah. time and hang on to that for years even
1: yeah oh yeah yeah so that actually that's one advantage of being a university lecturer because we get student evaluations And they're usually filled up by people who love you or people who hate you. And the haters, I mean, I tell the students, if you've got constructive criticism, please include it, but just be respectful because sometimes there's things I didn't think of that aren't working, I need you to tell me, and that's fine. They just just attack you. So it used to bother me, um, but now I just... I don't let it bother me anymore because I think, well, okay. And I say that to the students first day, who's never made a mistake in their entire life. I say, that's right, And I'm going to make mistakes. And you're just going to have to deal with it because I'm not perfect. And that's just the way life goes. And maybe you might even learn something from it. And most people are okay. But my sister's the same. She's a restaurateur and she just gets some vitriolic comments on, you know, the TripAdvisor. And you just have to say, look, nearly everybody gives you five out of five stars. Does the person that gave you one, they're an outlier and they're an asshole. So just <laughs> just let it go, but it's it's hard. I don't think she's quite got there yet. I certainly have. I'm just just don't have time for the haters. You don't know anyone's yes. story. You don't know where they've come from. You don't know what they're dealing with that day. You don't know what they're dealing with. You don't know you know, anything from birth onwards, what their circumstances have been. And and I've found as an educator that has made me so much better at my job because I just, every email that comes in, no matter how aggressive it is, I just think, you know what, don't know what's going on with that person. I'm going to respond with kindness. I think once, maybe earlier this year, I responded quite angrily and I felt really bad because I'd just gone down to that person's level, but I was super stressed. And I actually wrote back and apologised and said, I'm sorry, I shouldn't have responded like that. I'm just... Not in my normal frame of mind, and it just lifts yeah. humanity up. I think if we can all all be yes. a like that.
0: and the thing that I'm hearing from you, Erica, and I think this is great to hang on to from this podcast is that, and you would have heard me say this before, but strategies that work for one person may not work for the next. What works for you in one moment may not work in the next moment. So let's just keep filling that toolbox up. But what I hear so clearly for you is you almost have a blueprint, like a go to guidebook for different. Levels of anxiety or panic attacks, and you're like, right, I'm here now. These are the things in my toolbox that I can pull out and try. Pull out and try. I know that they work. I've used them over and over again. I can trust them. Even that element of practicing, 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 so that you know in your heart of hearts that the resources you have work for you personally. Is that
1: right? That's exactly right. And I'll tell you the other thing. I've just had an epiphany, and so th- thank you for inviting me on. This you're welcome. Podcast. As, a, as a young person, I was quite obnoxious really. I was very forthright. I was right about everything. I couldn't lose an argument. You know, I would die on a hill before losing an argument. I was quite bolshy. My mother used to say to me, you know, we're your family. We have to love you. When you grow up, people don't have (laughs) to like you and you better, you'll end up basically with no friends because you're you're bolshy. And so I've learned very well to self-reflect and learned to say, actually the first time I ever said to someone, I don't understand what you're saying, I, I just don't get it because i'd always used to oh yeah i understand and nod and because i was always worried everyone would think i was stupid and then one day i just, oh, I just can't anymore I, just, I don't understand i'm dumb explain it to me again and oh, it's just like this you know relief but i think having to think about myself and my panic attacks and work through that that's developed this ability to to self-reflect and think okay what am i doing am i being an asshole maybe i am being an asshole or just Yeah, I can't believe from where I was as a young person where I just, I don't think I had any self-reflection. I don't think young people do maybe, I don't know, but to turn into someone. So it's just about sitting down and thinking what am I doing in my life and why am I doing it and why am I reacting this way and, and trying to think through those things. And then that's how you yeah. develop strategies, whatever it is, whether it's anxiety, whether it's getting to the gym, whether it's not drinking, whether it's, you know, whatever it is, whatever your challenges are that you need to, to get over.
0: What advice would you have for your young, you know, 12 year old girl before anything had changed in your world what advice would you have for her
1: Uh, I'd probably say loosen up a bit (laughs) in what way well I used to be that kid this is a classic example I'd be that kid where if we were playing a game I was so stressed if we weren't playing it the way you were supposed to play it because I thought no one's going to have fun because we're not playing it the right way that I wouldn't even notice that people were having fun you know, and I'll be like, but this is not how you're supposed to do it. So I was really, I was quite highly strong, I think. Very competitive, competitive in sport in particular, not so much at school. Had to win everything. So I'd probably just say to myself, hey, chick, just <laughs> take a chill pill and you've got a long life ahead of you and there's going to be a lot of shit come at you, so just just relax a little bit. And I think though, for what I went through with my mom, I don't know what I'd say to myself.
0: Well, what would you say to a family? What would you say to a family that's listening now? If there's a mom or a daughter or a dad or a cousin that's going through the thick of it now, what would you say to them?
1: I'd say it to the parents, just try to be aware of seeing what might happen to your kids with the acting out and that kind of thing. I don't know. I mean, I think back to my father, I don't know what more he could have done. He was trying to run a business. He's, he's wife, I mean, my parents fought pretty much on a daily basis, but they call us the fighting smiths. But, you know, they, they loved each other and, you know, we were a family and my, you know, my father, I guess, just saw his family falling apart and he's rock, His wife was going to die. He just did what he could do. He fed us, he clothed us, he kept us clean, he got us to school. What
0: did you need? Like he, he did everything he could, absolutely. But what did you need?
1: Honestly, I don't. I don't think he could have really done what we knew we were loved. We always knew from my parents that no matter what we did, they would always be there for us. They always had our backs, had complete unconditional love. Although maybe that hadn't perhaps come to the fore at that point. We we're probably a little bit too young because we hadn't mm. done anything shitty yet for our parents to and to demonstrate the fact that they would always be there. But my father physically was always there. Like I said, he, he was home on the weekends. We used to have forced family fun on Sundays, you know, and you'd be there, get in the car, we're going, and you're going to enjoy it whether you like it or not. So we, we'd we always spend all the Sunday together as a family. Saturday, Dad would be doing chores or whatever or something. You used to have to play golf a lot for work, you know, entertaining customers and that kind of thing. But, yeah, I, I think it's just one of those things that – it's just shit, and you just have to, and I think we've talked about this before, maybe if he'd sat down and talked to us a bit, I'm not sure. I'm just trying to remember if he ever said, if you need to talk. I don't know that he did, but I guess, you know, it was the 80s, he was a man. Even when he was very unwell, I said to him, maybe you should get some counts. Um, <laughs> I guess talking isn't a just wasn't a big thing. I was
0: thinking when you say that, I guess the message is sometimes it doesn't matter what you do, there's still going to be a fallout when you go through trauma and adversity. There's still an experience that you're going through. There's lessons that are learned. I guess the big piece, and I heard you say it earlier, is it's circling back and reflecting on, you know, what was that experience like for me? What did I take away from that experience? Like what are the things now that I have in my world that have made it richer because of this really shitty thing that happened and how can I use that now to move forwards with my life, whatever that looks like. So I think from your story there were some phenomenal anxiety strategies which I I can't get that beast floating away in the boat out of my mind. You're just talking and all I'm seeing is this little beast. Um, But I think the other piece is that for you when you started doing the reflection work like, oh, what's happening here? Why am I reactive like this? Perhaps why did I end up there? Maybe because of X. You know, I think that that's when all the pieces started to come together for you. Is that right?
1: Yeah, yes. And actually, so I think uh, back to what you were saying about what could parents do, and I think this connects in now with actually how I try to parent. It's that kindness and just trying to be I don't know, maybe more understanding of why your kids are doing what you're doing. So generally speaking as a parent, I'm not a very, um, I guess for want of a better word, a tough parent. I'm not always on my kid on her case, you know. I try to give her her space. Did I tell you she's
0: coming on the podcast next, so I'm just going to ask her whether that's her experience, (laughs) just, you know, while we're chatting, just so you know. (laughs) Just just so you (laughs) know.
1: But you know, if I because I do lose my temper, I said I've got a bad temper. But I will every time go in, sit down, listen, sweetheart. I shouldn't have done that. I'm the adult here. Let's do. Do you want to talk about it? I apologise. And I just I don't ride her. And I see a lot of people riding their kids, and I just think shit their kids. Uh, And my daughter has pretty much, as you know, the perfect life right she's as privileged as you can get I don't have any health issues she doesn't have any health issues she goes to a beautiful school she's you know everything she wants and I do think a lot of that is because I've always just shown her kindness and respect I've always listened to her but I see parents when the kids do something unreasonable they kind of snap at them so my point was back to I think when you've got kids who are going through something like a sick parent you need to probably have even a little bit extra kindness and asking them why are you doing that not just right you went out you got drunk you're grounded for a week which is what parents did in those days and I think still do and actually my 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 mother didn't have a very good childhood her mother left when she was young so I remember she was saying I didn't even know how to be a mother and my father had come from a very nice family although he was I think he was the, the alpha male I think everybody was quite scared of him and his temper But just that kindness, just, okay, right, you went out and got drunk, there will be some consequences and you will be grounded for a week, but why did you do that? Like just not getting angry, all that anger. I don't think that's useful. Mm.
0: and I think separating the behavior from the person as well you know I say that to my girls all the time I'm like there is going to be so many moments that I'm not going to like your behavior there's going to be so many moments that you don't like my behavior that doesn't mean that love's not there that yeah. doesn't mean at the end of the day I want you home safe in bed I said no matter what happens in the next 10 years 20 years 30 years I want you to know that my number one priority is you home safe that overrides everything else that is like my exactly north start. Yeah. so if you call me at 1am in the morning. And you have made mistakes or you've ended up taking something that you didn't want to take or, you know, whatever it looks like for you, know that my priority is to have you safe. We can have conversations later about it. But also I was thinking as you were talking, and we've got to finish up for the podcast, but I was thinking, you know, acknowledging that everyone's trying their best in the world. Most people... Most people are trying their best on a daily basis, most. So, you know, coming in with that intention and when you apologize to someone, if you feel like you're on the merry-go-round, like it's the same conversations that it's like, oh, here we are again, I'm apologizing again because the same stuff's happened. We're in the same emotional pattern here where, you know, something happens, I attack, you retreat, I attack, you know, whatever that looks like. Perhaps there's a question there that might be something like, What can we do differently next time we see ourselves on this merry-go-round? At what point can we do something and what is it that you and I need in this moment to stop this repetition of our
1: emotional signature in this relationship? Yeah, yeah, and I think if you can... Show that to your children, they'll develop that ability to do that and be adults that can do it. And
0: ask the question of the people they are in relationship with, whether it's their friends, their partners, their teachers. You know, we all butt heads with people. Yeah. I mean, hands up, please, please let me know if I'm wrong with that. Please let me know if someone's listening and they're like, <laughs> I, don't, I don't butt heads <laughs> with anyone ever. But yeah. Oh, Erica, thank you so much. We do need to finish up today. Oh, you're welcome. Just before we do, is there anything that you want to say to the audience? Anything I haven't asked you? that you'd like them to know?
1: So this is one of my favourite quotes and I have it stuck above my computer so I remind myself of it all the time. I don't know who said it actually, I just found it and it says, I'm going to read it, speak to your children as if they are the wisest, kindest, most beautiful and magical humans on earth for what they believe is what they will become. And that's what I try to Practice with my daughter. And now <laughs> I'm
0: crying. I thought I made it through the whole podcast. Yes. <laughs> and here are the tears. <laughs> oh, I love that. I love that. Yes. It's beautiful, oh, Send isn't it? that through, Erica. Can you send that through? Take a photo of it. Send it through to me. I'll pop it up in your yeah. Facebook group sure. because that is a really beautiful quote. And I love to finish the podcast. Yeah. I mean, we haven't laughed at all through this podcast. We've been so serious. <laughs> with who in your world truly makes you barely laugh?
1: Who or what in your world? Oh, India, my daughter. We just cack ourselves at home. She's so funny. And we're just laughing all the time.
0: (laughs) Thank you so much for coming on this podcast, for talking about so much. Like I was thinking as you were talking around, how am I going to do this introduction? Because we've actually moved mountains today. You know, we've actually covered a lot of ground and a lot of topics. So just thank you for being so raw, so honest and just having the conversation.
1: It's important for people to be honest, otherwise it all just disappears and Nobody knows that everyone's in the same situation. Yeah. Um, So I
0: expect you at the gym tomorrow just for everyone. This is the accountability (laughs) piece and the day after. I will be there, whole body (laughs) at 5.30. All right, Erica, thank you so much. Thanks, Ali. Hope you guys really enjoyed that episode. One of the things I really freaking love about this podcast is how honest and authentic everyone is that comes on. Don't you reckon? Like listening to Erica when she gets up in front of her class for the first time, they're just meeting her and she's meant to be their educator to say, you know what, here I am, I get things wrong, we'll work on this together. I just think, wow, if someone had kind of shown me that when I was a teenager going through that it's okay to not know and it's okay to work it out as you go and it's okay to sometimes feel like you're dropping or bottoming out and you can use strategies and tools to pull yourself back up. I feel like the twenties might have been a bit easier. I don't know about you. So I just huge shout out to Erica for getting on and just being really real. And hopefully you guys can take away all those strategies like <laughs> the monster in the boat, but so many things, even just, you know, what can you do to help control the environment? If you are anxious, if you are having panic attacks, What are the things you can do? You heard Erica talk about putting the tablets in her bag or making sure she's got the seat at the end of the row or just acknowledging to people that she's feeling a bit off today and she might need to leave. Those strategies for her allows her mind and her body to calm down and be like, you are safe. You are okay. There is a way out. So if you're out there today and you're struggling with that anxiety and those panic attacks, perhaps give one of those strategies a go or talk to a friend or a colleague or a professional about what strategies you could use in your life. I hope you guys have an amazing week. I'm really looking forward to next week and I will see you on Monday.